Welcome to a new episode of the Creative Industry Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby. Today, we're stepping away from our chaos menu programming, and we welcome production designer Ramsey Avery, who joins us to talk about his work on the film No One Will Save You. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So let's beam ourselves up to the episode with Ramsey. Hi, Ramsey. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Nice to be here. I'm excited to sit down and talk to you uh, about Hulu's latest release slash Disney Plus here in the UK. No one will save you, which, what can I say? Like, it's getting rave reviews online. I've seen a lot of people uh, really buzzing about it. And yeah, I'm quite excited to jump in and talk about production design of the uh, film itself. But before we jump into how you got onto the project, how have you found the response to the film? Um, very, very encouraging. A lot of people, it's when I read the script, you know, you you can see everything that's going on and what Brian, the director and writer intended to have happen and how the audience was supposed to kind of go along for the ride. But we have all the inside knowledge when we're reading that. And because it's all in stage directions, you know, that we can get that information that the audience doesn't have. And even as we were filming it, I was worried about the fact that still we know what's going on. Will the audience know what's going on? So I was very happy to see that between the acting and the editing and the cinematography and the music and the sound design, that all of that came together really well and that the audiences are responding the way that we had hoped we could. So I'm very excited by that, that the fact that all of that work came together and actually told the story that we were hoping we were going to tell. I think as well, it's, it is one of those films where you're not ahead of the character so you're not going to be like oh watch out for what's behind here you're literally discovering what's happening in the story in real time as as actor as well as a character sorry so then you're kind of just like oh my gosh like what's gonna happen next how are they gonna get out of this problem how are they gonna solve this and you're kind of on your edge of the seat the whole time and i think as well like a lot has to go into the like facial acting so it's like that must have been so hard to do, knowing that like so much pressure is on you to you're not actually emoting any words. You're just you're emoting it all in your face. And then the, and on top of that, like the whole sound design of it as well is incredible where it is where they do a lot of heavy lifting to help in the film as well. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, Caitlin's performance certainly carries the whole the whole movie along. She does a remarkable job with all that. And you can see that as we are watching the dailies, that all of that was there, um, that her journey and her discoveries throughout that journey were all there in her face and her actions. And so it, it, it did require the editing and the sound design and the music to pull all of that together, as it always does in any, in any project, but particularly so in one that has no, um, no dialogue. Um, I mean, and, and in terms of what the art department brought to the project is that we had to support all of that by making sure the world around her also did some of that lifting for her so that you could see the type of home she was in and the history of how she maybe came to where she was and what she was able to do with her skill sets and talents. All of that was kind of folded into the design so that uh, it wasn't entirely incumbent upon Caitlin to carry everything, although she is the focus of it, but the idea that the world around her also gives her that framework to work within. I think with the production design on a film like this, I know we're slightly jumping ahead, but I just wanted to sort of back up your point as well. Is like it's it is pretty much predominantly done in one location. There are sort of scenes where it takes place in the town on a bus in the forest as well, but it is mostly done set in the house. I think as well when it comes to production design point, I think it could be read as sort of not not interesting to design but i guess with a film that's being shot like every nook and cranny of like the house being shot being shot in and making it feel alive and having that certain certain things put into the house to be like this is what this person is all about this is what's adding to their character like what's quite beautiful is like the uh, model sets that are it that are in the house and the sort of way that 
uh, Caitlin is building, as you can see as a character, is like her perfect utopia compared to the real world that she's living in with her trauma. But I think on top of that as well, it's like what feels so great about the locate the house as well. One, I'd love to live in that sort of house, quite remote. Look at that sort of like uh, that sort of uh, decking onto the uh, lake and having all that sort of open area. But two as well, it's like you have that, you just know that there's something about the house that's going to creak. There's certain things that feel so lived in that it just, you know that there'll be certain things that if something goes bump in the night, you're going to be terrified by it. A couple of things in, in in that, I guess, to respond to. The 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 only reason I would take on a design project or a film or TV project at this point is because it is a project that relies on what production design can bring to a project to help tell the story. Um, and in this particular script, it's was much like 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was also happened, you know, basically in one location. And um, in both of these stories, the location has to be a character um, because you spend so much time in that location. You have to have a feeling about the environment around the lead characters. And that's what keeps it interesting. So there definitely was nothing. When I first read the script, it's like, it, it was kind of the opposite of boring. It's like, oh, this is a serious challenge. How do you possibly get all the backstory you need to get into the the film using just visuals? So that was a, it was an exciting challenge uh, to to take that on. And then in terms of the nature of the house, that was something that was very specific to what Brian had a very definite idea about the house. Um, he'd written the script with some version of upstate New York, or at least somewhere up in the mountains of some Appalachian hillside kind of view for it. But, you know, tax credits being the driving force of where we make movies or television shows these days, um, New York State couldn't possibly beat uh, Louisiana for a tax credit. So we ended up shooting it in Louisiana, which led us to a whole nother conversation about specifically that idea of what goes creek in the night. And when you're in Louisiana, it's very easy to lean into that kind of swamp and Southern Gothic feel of, um, of what Louisiana can provide you, particularly Southern Louisiana around New Orleans. But the um, we didn't want that to be the overriding effect. You wanted the aliens to bring the creepy into the house. You wanted the house to not be creepy. So that was actually a fairly difficult endeavor for us in Louisiana to try to find a place for that. And it all started with that location. And we had a, excuse me, we had a very limited amount of time to find a location for this. We had uh, less than a 12-week prep on it, which is fairly tight, pretty normal for this type of movie, but fairly tight for what we were trying to do with it. And we spent two weeks trying to find a house and um, just nothing we found had all the right conditions to it, whether or not it was too close to neighbors or if it felt too suburban or too modern, or it didn't have that kind of depth the separation from the road or a sense of trees around it. or So we, we literally were at our last house and I was about to make a phone call to Brian and say, I'm not finding anything great, but here are the best three. We'll make one of them work. And we got a text in from one of the location scouts who sent a picture like, here's the house. This is great. And we looked at it, it's like, oh my God, yeah, that is great. So we dashed over to, to the house and it was, it was that house that we found on location, which um, not only had all the right settings, plus it had that pond, which was a spectacular plus. The script says she's writing her letters underneath a tree in the front yard and just felt so much better to be out on that pond in the open air with the house in the background. Um, just felt like that was like the right vibe for, for Bryn. But that the sense of the house, that it actually was a hundred-year-old house that had been picked up literally in the real world, had been picked up and moved to this location out of a care and a compassion for the house. And then they lovingly added on the back half of the house in the real house, gave us this kind of this sense of the right storytelling, the right emotions to the to the house. Um, the inside of the house, of course, didn't work at all. I mean, there was nothing about the inside of the house that, that really worked. It was a little a warren of messed up rooms that had been kind of built upon one another. Um, so it, it, there was no way logistically to film inside of it. Plus, we couldn't have afforded to rent the house for long enough to, to shoot inside of it. So we ended up having to build all of those interiors. But we were able to take that sense of the exterior and find the ways to to integrate it to the to the interior. There, there's an interesting point you made about, well, the use of location work, and then also build work. I think um, 
like as an audience member, it looks very seamless on screen. But I guess as uh, people working on it, I can imagine like I can imagine that it can create uh, a massive headache when you're sort of having a reference point of what the outside looks like, to then what the inside looks like when you're going through those sort of procedures and sort of researching and developing ideas. How much more creative freedom do you have in terms of knowing that there'll be a certain thing that look how the door, the entrance would look like, but then the the hallway would look. What what would you have to do to make the hallway look similar, but then also add your own little style to it as well? A couple of couple of things about that. There's the script in that it was eighty seven pages of stage directions has some very specific layouts of what action has to happen and what follows step A leads to step B leads to step C. And so I had to sit down and once we had that exterior look for the house and we knew what its basic shape was, I had to sit down and work out a layout where I could map out all of the actions. You know, Bryn has to be able to come from the staircase, see the front door, go downstairs, end up in the kitchen, all the issues with the reflections and the phone, all of that stuff has to be set up um, just in terms of the pure logistics of the um, of the storytelling that is required by the script. You just have to literally sit down and map that all out. And then once I'd mapped it out, I went through it with both Brian and the DP, Aaron Morton, and worked through all this. And Brian had a few notes and Aaron had a few notes and we make those adjustments and then we start to design we design the rest of the the architecture. The exterior is limiting in the sense that you have to match the exterior. You can't start suddenly throwing things where there aren't things. Um, but we did do things like our story needs to have a second floor, a full second floor that has windows on the second floor. That house didn't. So we added dormer windows and chimneys to that location house on the outside so that we could put those elements onto the to the inside. It was even a little bit more trickier in that we were building this set on a warehouse stage that wasn't particularly tall. And Aaron both needed room to get lights in so it could feel like it was moonlight. So even though you have a set that might fit on a stage, you have to have enough room above the set to get the lights higher above the set to get the light to come in at the right angle. Um, so we ended up having to take the interior of the of the set and divide it into three different sets. There's a basement set, a first floor set that has a staircase that goes up to a landing. And then there's a second floor set that's built slightly off the ground, like six feet off the ground, that has all the, the bedrooms um, and the pink room on the top floor and a part of a staircase going down. And then we have to work with um, camera angles to make sure that we can connect all of those three sets. And we even got a little bit more trickier in that we had designed the basement to be a set on the same stage, but as it worked out with schedules, uh, you need a thing in filmmaking called a cover set so that if you're filming outside in the weather and it starts to rain, you have a set to go to to be undercover and keep working. And the location house has had a barn in the back of <clears throat> a big barn garage. And we decided at very last minute that we had to actually reconfigure the basement to put it in that barn. So that basement is actually on a ground floor barn um, on location. So trying to then sit down and work out with Aaron and, and Brian how we're going to make those connections is a, it's just a discussion of how we adjust the layout and the camera work to let all that take place. Well, that's quite a lot to take in in terms of planning and organizing. That must have literally, it feels like like a Rubik's Cube in terms of like your, you have the script, there's a Rubik's Cube, and then putting all the pieces of how your, what the set will look like in terms of movement. And also on top of that, the um, gaffer coming in to put their lights up with, and working with the DOP. I'm, I'm not really sure where to start because it feels like there's there's so much there that, must be quite difficult for you to navigate, right? Or is it a case of you could create a model of where, of what you're building and then sort of start moving walls and places of where people need to be or what needs to happen? Because with the big action set pieces, so I think like the uh, kitchen one where all the lights sort of go off and on and off and then uh, they flicker and the doors open. I can imagine that the positioning of certain things on the set would have to move so that doors can swing open. And But on top of that, having uh, Caitlin run through without any issue of hurting themselves. It is just a, a working out. You pick those, those, those important story beats. 
from the script. We know that the door has to open. We know that the alien has to be taken out of the door um, later in the second night. Um, we know there's a whole bit of a cat and mouse with the refrigerator and the phone and the reflection. Um, we know she has to get back to a bathroom and that there's a whole issue with the staircase going up and down and aliens going up and down on the staircase. So there's like five or six beats that you have to address. And and my goal when I'm working on these types of things is to is to figure out how those five or six beats are solved and then stitch the, the rest of it together. And usually some sort of happy accident happens in the midst of it. I guess it's just one of the things that I'm kind of, that's what I do. That's just one of the things I'm, I'm known for. Right? I mean, there was a sequence in Tomorrowland, the Brad Bird movie, that there's a, an attack sequence that happens through the house, you know, in, in terms of the animatronic figures working through the house and then the escape hatch happens. And it's just, you know, I basically had an hour at lunchtime to figure out how to design the two stories of the house to make all that happen, because that's what our schedule allowed. And you know, so it's just I have a feeling for it, I guess it's kind of a silly way to say it, but it but it's but I, I just I have a good sense of plan. So being able to sit down and do that and then be able to work through that with Brian and say, I think if you set the camera here, you'll be able to get this reflection to work that way. And then Bryn can run this way. And then we know she has to be able to get to the, the birdhouse village. And this is the pathway that she would take and the alien can come this way. All of that kind of very specific plan making to the shots, we can we can sit down and work that through. But there's there's also the emotional component and the kind of narrative emo, um, component to all of that. And the fact that the house is layered and has these openings to it that all the rooms aren't completely closed off. Like I specifically opened up a pass through from the kitchen to the parlor so that she could be in the parlor and look through and see the phone. But all those openings also create the sense of the house as a series of cages and boxes. So when you look at the house, there's also still this sense that she's within a cage. Each of these rooms is a box. And then each of those boxes has a series of bars or chains on it. All the wood paneling, even though it's all wood and warm or painted yellow, it's all vertical lines. So when she's leaning up against it, you have this sense of bars across her head. And then the windows, when the blinds come down, are all these horizontal bars across the windows that, that make this kind of sense of the cage enclosing her. Even the wallpaper in the kitchen is a chain link fence right? It's covered with vines, but it, everywhere you look in that, you're trying to get this, this idea that this house, even though it's warm, it's still kind of a trap. It's both a trap because that's where Bryn is deciding to keep herself because the, the community is kind of trapping her there. But it's also kind of a trap because she has to figure out how to get out of it when the aliens are compressing her into it. So you've got the layer of the logistics that you have to solve in terms of camera, then you've got the logistics of how you have to solve for setting and building something on a stage and getting the camera and the light into it. But while you're doing all of that, you still have to resolve the issue of you want the audience to feel something in this space. And what are their textures and shapes and colors that give you that capacity to bring those feelings to the audience? And then lastly, and equally as important, if not more importantly, is what is the character of Bryn? How do we bring in the idea of her family? How long has her family been here? What's the history of the family? Where's all the indications of the family vacations they took together, the projects that she and her mom did? And now that she's been away from her mom for eight years or whatever, when her mom died, and she's been stuck in juvenile delinquent jail or wherever it was that she was off to for the last 10 years. Um, what is? How does she teach herself now to be an adult and looking for those clues as well? So you're trying to layer those four things into every bit of design choice you make. And you, you try to do that by coming down to like a series of specific keystones. You know, Brent, it needs to be warm. It needs to be a trap. You need to see the history. And Brent is creative. She's intelligent and she's creative. So every choice you make wants to reflect one of those elements or all of those elements if possible to help you bring the audience along the journey with you. So those three four points, when it comes to designing, and I guess there's certain things that you do take from the script that with Bryn being creative, because you see her with the making the dresses and the sewing machines, and then also with the uh, model village. But also the points of like the design terms of like being inside a prison with the uh, ways that the 
paint is being painted up rather than across and then also the blinds are these ideas that you start story not storyboarding but um making note of early on and communicating that with your construction team or do you sort of start building up and then it's something that kind of like a light bulb moment happens sometimes when you're just sort of sitting there being like oh hang on a second let's use this instead of this uh, it's a combination. Generally, what, what I would normally, what I always do is I start off with reference. I do a bunch of research. I, I usually hire, I do some research on my own. I hire a researcher and we, we call through a bunch of images and finding those images starts to give us clues. Originally, Brian wanted the house. He wrote it as kind of a log cabin, which you don't have in Louisiana. So trying, but that idea that he wanted the warmth of wood was an important element to, to keep in mind. The the, the sense of the creativity, one of the things that was in the script also was that that birdhouse village wasn't birdhouses in the script. It was actually ceramic. I don't know if you're familiar with these. Lennox is a, is a company that makes these ceramic houses and they're miniature houses and they make a Halloween version and they make a Christmas version and, and people, they're collectibles and people just buy one every year and they just build up over time this collection of these houses. For Brian, when he wrote that into the script, it was something that he that 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 he wanted Bryn and her mom to share as a joint thing. It was definitely what you said. She's making a perfect village that she's creating the village that she can't live in, um, and that was the important. That was the underlying idea of the the the, the village idea. But we couldn't use Lennox um, for a couple of reasons. Legal just wouldn't let us use it because it's a brand name and we're going to break it and then we're going to kill something with it. So, you know, we can't you we can't do that. So one of the pieces of reference when I was looking for how do you make Bryn's yard look more like Bryn, like something that she created, I found these really wonderful images of uh, birdhouses. And um, basically, you can order birdhouses online, either finished or unfinished, and then you can decorate them. So I pitched to Brian, rather than these Lennox villages, let's have something that's actually something more active that Bryn and her mom are actually making so that they they can get in these birdhouses and then they can... Um, they can um, make them and build them together. So it shows how crafty she is and how creative she is. And also I thought the idea of a birdhouse was exactly right for Bryn, you know, that she is stuck. It's not a bird cage, but, you know, cause that's a little too on the nose, but then the idea that a bird house is something that feels like a place where this small delicate thing goes for protection. It seemed like the right idea to express kind of the core idea of Bryn. So that process comes from the research. I'm wondering, I didn't even think about this. Then the, the next thing that I do is a series of illustrations, usually. The, the, the next step that I would do after the reference is I would start to build a digital model and start to work from that plan. I, you know, that plan I developed and I would work with the set designer. and we'd start to develop a digital model showing how the whole house would look if you saw the whole house together and what the relationships between are everything. And then I work with an illustrator to come up with visual images of what the house should be. And um, I, I don't know how much time you really want to take for any of this, but let me see if there's any way I can get to something here. I think it's fascinating, carry on, because it's just, there's, because these are the sort of things that like, as an audience member, it's those little details that will make, it will enhance the viewing process. So even if you might not notice it the first time, once you watch it again and you see these little things, and then it's like, it's like not subliminal messaging, but it's like a where, like a visual message for an audience member to be like, oh, damn, like I know what you were going for there. Like I can't, but those little sort of like sprinkle, sprinkle of detail really sort of, again, will enhance how you view it and how you understand what you guys were going for for the design process as well. Yeah, it's it's one of those things Brian wanted it to be able to stand up to a second viewing. Like if you now that you know what happens, now you can go back and take a look and see what the clues are along the way that you missed the first time. That so that was part of the conversations that we had also with with Aaron in terms of where he's going to point the camera is how do we arrange bits and pieces to get things in camera? How do we get a family photograph on the fridge? How do we get a little saying about family means everything behind the birdhouse village? You know, that there's this sense of how you you build up those those um, elements. But do you, if you wanted to allow me to share the screen, I'll show a couple of illustrations. Yes, like this is what I was talking about in terms of my just sitting down and roughing out a plan in terms of how the action is gonna work, these quick hand-driven 
hand-drawn sketches for me just to kind of say, here's the layout of the house. Here's the front door. These are the window conditions that more or less match the existing house. So how do we break up the space inside of it to, um, to match that exterior and then still lay out the action where we need to have the fridge and the phone and the reflection and all of the things in here that we started to work out from, from here. So there's a series of sketches this is the second floor set where you come up off that staircase where you still have the relationship from the window, from the door to the staircase. And this is the, a version of the basin. It got much smaller because of money. We couldn't afford to build all of this, but you know. But then from these sketches, I then I start to work on illustrations. And this was the first illustration we did, which was her bedroom, because the movie starts in the bedroom and wanting to see how that, how that actually gets us into the movie. And th this is where that idea of two things couple of things in this image are important that I wanted to get the ceilings to compress on her so that has a feeling of her being trapped. And we also know that there's that moment where she has to be flown up into the ceiling. And rather than having a flat ceiling, having a ceiling that had these angles in it. So when she went up into it, there was only one place for her to go. Then you can see here's the sense of the bars worked in to the, to the design. And then that sense of from the birdhouse is wanting to say that, um, okay, she was able to look at all the online references for cottage core and what makes a house pretty. So she decided because she's talented and creative and because she has all the time in the world, she painted the sky and the trees and the birds from the birdhouses up into her room. Um, but you can also see there's things in here that are still about where she hasn't quite grown up. There's a bunch of of stuffed animals in here and some some more kind of teenage decoration going on. There's twink lights in here, a collection of shoes and a collection of hats, things that make it feel like it's specific to things that Bryn would care about. And the color of blue is both kind of a comforting blue, but when that red light hits it, it gets to turns into this kind of ugly bruise color. So looking for those types of um, versions as well. And so then the next place we see her, at least in the original script, was we saw her making her, her dresses. So again, how to make a basement feel like it's a warm, cozy place and seeing those elements of where Bryn was bringing her paint skills and decorative skills back into it. The idea that uh, the fireplace thing here was decoupaged with dress form, dress um, dress patterns, the things that you cut out to make dresses. So she did a whole decoupage of that to decorate this. Again, those ideas of thinking how Brent, we can show how Brent is creative and clever. The kitchen being the kitchen being a um, a warm and comfortable space, and getting that sense of um, again where she brought her creativity and trying to find ways to bring the bird theme into it. And again, bars, wherever we could get bars into it. And then the, the thing that kind of sold the whole um, the whole idea was in the long run was this um, image of the of the front room. You can see there's the pass through here into the kitchen back there and the layering and how we've got these sets of boxes and frames that frame um, Bryn in her house and also in the camera. And that this idea of how this birdhouse village then could become something that you can see her craftiness of it, like it makes a waterfall by using the blue fabric and it drapes into a, a, a carpet that's a blue carpet that looks like a pond down in there. So it's just looking for these elements. So by, by doing this series of, of explorations in the illustration, that helped us determine the tone and using these illustrations then is how I can communicate with, with construction and the set decorator and the prop master and the painters, uh, the graphic designer. You know, I had to work with a graphic designer to figure out what the actual patterns of this were and how they actually fit into the, um, into the actual model. Once we think I have a model, I don't, don't have a model of the, of the house. But you can see in here how this this is we can work with at the same time I'm working on those illustrations. I'm working with the set designer to do a full 3D model of the house. And then that 3D model can then be broken down into the working drawings. We can determine all how the paneling works, what the material of the panels are, what the color is, how do you actually lay out the design of the trees so they fit in the actual set. So that that basis of starting with a set of reference. Then moving to some illustrations while we're working on digital models allows us to create the, the design that allows us to talk to everybody, including visual effects in terms of how they're going to move a, an alien through there. Then visual effects gets these models and they can start to test how they're going to size their aliens and move their aliens through it.
well, looking at all <laughs> of that and just sort of taking that in, in terms of just like starting with those, having a look at those original sketches of where the movement will be, placement of certain items to then showing those, the concept art. And also hearing like the use of colour as well, just how important colour is in what you guys are building, how you want to show it, especially with that blue in the bedroom. And then how you said with the light beaming on it, then the change of colour to sort of corrode her sort of uh, safe space away. Again, sort of like it blows my mind as well, just how much goes into something like this and just the little details and the minute things that you put in. I also noticed in the kitchen, the green that you guys used, um, which is that sort of, uh, I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's like that sort of mom and pop green that you've seen in like the old school American houses. My friend still has it in Chicago, that green. He wanted to get rid of it. And it's like, you can't, this is like, I, it's like it's iconic basically it's, you can't you can't get rid of it especially when it's like a slightly older house it's like it's part of it now you have to just keep it well and part of that came from uh, there's a scene that's cut from the final movie where Bryn after she has her dinner she's watching a, an old Douglas Sirk movie and Douglas Sirk was this uh, mid-century master of kind of romantic comedies in America that had this undercurrent of things aren't really right in, at home, but they're very, they're light and they're frothy, but they have this undercurrent of danger and things amiss. And we based a lot of the color palette on the colors that were used in those movies. It it reinforces the sense of, like you said, comforting, like it feels like it's old homey and it feels like a good place. It also makes the sense that, that Bryn retreats into the mid-century 50s, 60s romanticism because she can't really inhabit current day so all of those things are again it's all about trying to build that story of Bryn through the visuals in terms of like building the story and uh the character of Bryn do any of your ch- designs or little things change once the cast members on and they start uh developing the character in their own way or is it a case of like they sort of take what you guys have created and then incorporate that into uh their character building one of the things that is kind of odd about the way Hollywood makes movies is a lot of times you don't actually get to have those communications with the um, the actors directly. It'll be filtered through the director because he'll be having some of those conversations. And oftentimes the director will show the, the actor's imagery every once in a while, you know, you get to take an actor through a presentation, which is super great. I mean, on, on Hotel Artemis, um, we got to walk Jodie Foster through our designs and she had some very specific ideas about how the nurse in that movie should operate. And she wanted us to put some specific pieces of like books that she read and colors that she liked and things that informed her story. So she brought that to it, but that doesn't happen often. In this particular case, I did get to have a couple of email correspondences with Caitlin, which was great because that gave me a sense of how she was envisioning the character. And in a lot of ways, it it dovetailed directly with the ways that I imagined the character having re- from reading the script and talking with, with Brian so that we were all on the same page, which was great. So I don't I don't remember if she necessarily, nothing strikes me as that she said, please add this into it. But her general sense of wanting the fact that this is a young woman who hasn't completely grown up because she hasn't gone through the adolescence that everybody else gets to go through. That was something that was important to her. And that was one of the things we're trying to make sure we brought in those childlike elements still into it was something that I tried to to maintain. Okay, because I always think that like, I guess because you guys come on so early on into the project that you sort of start deciding things character-wise in the in the film early on because you guys are sort of getting prepping it for shoot and already starting to do your research and development on on how things would look there is another question that i'm want to ask because you've already talked about how you spoke with this uh, with the camera department vfx in terms of with these big action set pieces how things are going to move or where the camera can be placed and how the space is going to be used but there's also i'm curious to know if like What's it like when you're talking with the stunt department? Because um, I can imagine that there's a lot of wire work in something like this where things have to go off. And it's the same with special effects. But then on top of that, uh, sound design. With sound design, there's, is there any other discussions and when they're talking to you about how like the wood might sound? Or is there certain areas that they can sort of, they walk around the set to get a feel of how the, how the place sounds like when they're walking around? 
That's that's one of those things where the, the the way we make movies is a little bit more disjointed than you might think. Um, so like sound comes in, sound design comes in after we've shot the movie, right? So the sound team is there on the day and they're listening for sounds. Like so, the house is built out of wood and it's built up on wood platforms, so it does actually creak you know so it's listening to those things and you don't normally want to do like you don't want the doors to actually creak because they're going to get in the way of the real sound design so you'd probably want your door to actually be quiet and let the sound designer put the creak into the door later on but there were things that I looked at to be able to give the sound designers things to play with like for example in the kitchen there's that whole wall of hanging pots so that we know that there's something that they can bang around that way that gives them something to um to to play with um in terms of special effects it again like everything else it's a constant discussion if we're all doing our job right we're talking to people all the time because it's impossible to do this um on your own it's just it's it's a communal effort and it's one of the things i believe very strongly about is that it's it it is a it's a village. We it takes everybody to make a movie happen. And everybody ought to be talking to one another all the time. Um, in this particular case, there are things you have to. We had to deal with how do you get that door off the hinges, and how do you fly it safely toward an actress. So, and, and that's not just with stunts, but that's also with cameras. So that you line up the shot that you're behind Bryn as she's running to the door. When you blow the door off with wires and with an effect you've got a dead stop on it. So there's no way the door can come far enough to actually hit Bryn. It's definitely got a stop on it. But because you're looking at it from behind, the camera is compressing the image so that it looks like the door is hitting Bryn. And then visual effects takes over where it needs to take over. But that's a discussion between special effects saying, I can do the rig here to get the door to come here. And camera says, I'll move the actress to do here and I'll put the camera right here so it all blends together. And visual effects will do that last little bit to make sure that it looks like it really hits if it if it needs to. So that's a that's a series of conversations that we work out in meetings, looking over drawings. And then we start off with the over the drawings and a white model. We, we build a, a white foam core model and we, we have meetings over that. And then once the set is up and standing, then we come back and we confirm all of those um, decisions again, and we make any modifications we need to once we're actually standing in the real set. Okay. Because I think there's like, as you said, like films are massive communal effort. It does take an army to bring these things to life. And there's always going to be constant discussion with each department on how you're going to do things because, as you said, it's all like if a door's going towards an actress, you need to make sure that it's uh, one, it's safe, <laughs> that they don't hit bit hit by it, two, nothing gets damaged, and three, that it looks as believable as possible on screen. And you have to do it multiple times. You have to be able to reset it and do at least three takes. So that's the other thing that you have to be able to do. Yeah, probably another headache in itself. Um, just it, you know, if it goes wrong, trying to reset that if it doesn't break back or what or whatnot. Like for the, when we destroyed the birdhouse village, we had to actually build three full villages so that we could do a reset and destroy it again if we needed to. So that's the cost thing as well and a time thing. Which again, like um, in terms of like setting up the bird village. Even though you're building everything, three different, uh, three of the same items, but putting it back together as well. Like, I do feel sorry if we ever had to do that. And on top of that, the continuity of like, if it's just slightly out or if it's not out, <laughs> right. they're like, they'll probably drive certain people crazy as well. Yeah. As it turned out, we actually got to film it just the once because the first the first take worked for everybody. So we didn't have to reset it. But that's part of where you talk to the first AD to say, okay, it's going to take us 30 minutes to 45 minutes to reset that. So you need to go find someplace else, something else to film. So you're not just standing around waiting for us to do that. So can you go film something over in the bedroom? Or can you go film something back in the kitchen? Or is there some part of the back? In this case, we had the whole deep back bathroom, which is another place that, that could be filmed in. So it's just, it becomes a discussion with the actual filmmaking process to make sure that you're not wasting time as well yeah because uh, you know time is money um as yeah. they say on a film set so it's going to be uh quite you know you don't want as you said don't want people standing around doing nothing whilst you have all these poor people under pressure to put everything back together right 
<laughs> but I, I, what I'm curious about as well is, um, so this isn't the first film that you've done as a one location film. Uh, you mentioned before Hotel Artemis and 10 Cloverfield Lane, both films that I really, really love. I love 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's It was one of those films that when it came out of that year, it was, like blew me away of just how good it was. In terms of like a design standpoint, because they're all one locations and each place has a very specific feel and look to them. How did you find it? Like how different was it designing for each film? Because the characters in them are different, that gives you an entirely different way to 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 find your way into the design. In in 10 Cloverfield, you've got Howard, the guy who builds this bunker, and you don't really want to give away the fact that he's a bad guy. Right. That's in fact, you in the long run, you kind of want to feel a little sorry for for Howard. I mean, he is a bad guy, but in the long run, you kind of want to you want, you want to have some empathy for him. So the the idea was to figure out what's his story? Why did he build this? And we created a whole backstory for this where we actually decided that I'm going to mess up the dates now. It's been a while since I did this, but somewhere in the late 90s, he just got freaked out about the world. Um, so he built a small bunker. And then when 9-11 happened, that freaked him out even more. So then he decided he needed to build a bigger bumper bunker. And he, he had his wife along with this idea for a bit. And then he just started getting overly obsessive about it. And his daughter actually loved this bunker because she got to play in it. It was like her playhouse in the bunker. But as she got older and she became more rebellious as a teenager and her father was actually clearly being kind of weird about all of this, she rebelled against this. And his next step of it was to build this room that was going to be just for her so that she'd have her own room. And then she runs away. And that leaves that room half painted with pink in that in that room. And um, the the idea was to then to really figure out why Howard did every step of the way, both because it was sensible as a prepping for the end of the world. What are the things you really have to do to make sure you're safe? How do you have water? How do you have heat? How do you have generate? Where's the air conditioning work? You know, how do you store enough food? All of that stuff had to be thought out. There's a whole thing about how you design a um, a bunker that you want to make sure if radiation comes in, radiation travels in a straight line. So you want to be able to make sure that everything, that there's a bounce, that there's a, a right angle that radiation can't come into. And the first bunker he built, which ended up being his room, radiation could actually come a straight line into his room. So that didn't work. So then when he made the next part of the bunker, he made it off to the side so that the radiation couldn't get into it. So like every step of the way of thinking about this is thinking about how do you how do you make Howard smart? How do you explain why he built what he built? And that allowed a way to be into the storytelling. And it gave us a way, again, there's all these logistical things you have to meet in that movie. You have their stores and staircases and, and hatches and all of that stuff that the movie requires to tell the story. You have to have the logistic elements. You have to figure out how to get a camera into that space. Um, and then you also have to figure out how to give some sense of day and night and time changing and make sure that the audience always knows where they are. So you, you're, you're balancing all of that. And all of that is gives you different clues to be able to design that movie differently than the issues of No One Will Save You, which is about a young woman, <laughs> another plucky young woman fighting aliens, right? But but the idea that it is a sense of this is her house and this is her history in it. And how does that make it different than the very specific reasons that Howard built his bunker? I mean, there's just different reasons. And so those different reasons allow you to make different design choices. Okay. Yeah. Cause I just think again, as a design point, there's like having it as like somebody's home. Cause there's like the living room area with the fish and the lighting and, and whatnot to then going to that half painted pink room and finding out that John Goodman's character, Howard is just, yeah, just something's not right. And yeah. it sort of played on with the idea that, as you said, like the probably Y2K set him off to then 9-11 to then, oh no, I was actually right all along that something was going to happen. Right. Yeah. So that's what makes it that's what makes design exciting is when you can work on a project where the world is important to the storytelling that those are the types of projects I like to do. I think as well, like when you have such a big say in a character or like that, the the production design is a character in the film and how important it is as well. Um, as we've seen uh, and what you showed me as well, it's like the minute details where you think, wow, like there's a lot of thought that's gone into it and it's like there's a lot of reasoning about why 
x y and z are happening or how certain colors are used or the way that you've put the wood paneling always strikes me as well just like just that sort of level of detail that needs to go into it and the care that you've put into it as well to make sure that you can absolutely nail it and just looks incredible now the the funny thing is is that when you do that in these smaller movies where you only really have one set to, to work on and then you move on to something like rings of power where now all of a sudden you have eight hours of filmmaking you have to do that same type of thing with over 100 sets <laughs> it becomes a it's a whole different beast but it's it's the same rules it's all about the same process it's the research to the illustration to the model building to all of the discussions to figuring out what makes an elf an elf what makes a dwarf a dwarf what are those visual clues that the audience has how do we tell the emotional components of each of those sequences or scenes or places it's it's all the same business it all starts from the same point you just have to figure out what are the guideposts that the script and the director give you in in each in each project yes and i think uh well, tv and film slightly different as you have like uh you know rings of power for example you have whatever it is eight hours um and different jumping from place to place as you say the fundamentals don't change and what is it that makes these places people's homes and what's important to them and what is it that they won't wouldn't be able to live without in these places. And I think it's the same in life as well. When you move to a new place, it's like, what are the little comforts or little things that make your place yours? Like the photo, the photos of you and your family or the certain scented candle or maybe the positioning of like where your sofa is. It's always those little things as well that you just don't think about and seeing it in a film as well. I just think, yeah, again, it, it opens your mind as well more when you ha when I have these discussions about like, wow, there's like, there's so much you just need to think about that something so simple like a house, there's so much more to it to make it look like it's an, a house and not just a sterile area that somebody resides in. One of those things that's also that is always important to think about is light. And when it comes to design, we're really not designing. Production design designs spaces, but what you're really designing is what light is hitting and where light is bouncing off and where the light is coming from. It's all about the light. And then when, so we always think about, is it going to be an electric light? Is it going to be a candlelight? Is it flame? Where does it become that tone of light and the ideas and the emotional components that we all associate with light something you know a fluorescent light gives us a different feeling than a nice warm incandescent light gives us a different feeling than a candle you know and all of those those are components that you have to um you always have to think about is how you're going to light a face you know where, where's the light going to come from in lord of the rings it was wild because of course there's no electric light anywhere right everything has to be lit by some version of flame or the sun or the moon and so how do you figure out how to make and light environments and make them different how do you make dwarvish light look different than elven light look different than harfoot light look different than numenorean light and you know we had to come up with all those different discussions about how light sources reflect the character and reflect the emotion that you're trying to convey in the movie so and you know and, and no one will save you at night when the power goes out all she's got is moonlight and so you've got to figure out how to get the moonlight into the set so it allows Aaron to light the figures in a way. So how big are the windows? Where do the windows go? How are the, Where are there other doors? Are there blinds on the windows? All those types of things to figure out how to get the light into the set is both a practical consideration, but every one of those choices also drives an emotional feel in the audience. I think as well, if like time is moving in the film and take it at different points of the night where the moon's you know where they're emulating the, the moon that's probably another like consideration that might need to be taken as well i'm not sure that's probably a question for uh, the dop but it's still like even those little details of like well if we have window here where's the light going to come from if we need to put this in here and then also as you said how big are the windows going to be it's like all these sort of discussions that sort of still blow my mind about how much detail and thought has to get into before you even step on the set to, to shoot. Long series of discussions with lots of people. <laughs> Again, probably quite interesting discussions. It would be great to be a fly on the wall on some of them um, on how to get things moved around or what needs to be done. And then there's always things that you don't expect. Like we we um, we had a very difficult issue with the set decorator on this project in that the production wanted me to hire somebody who was local to New Orleans. 
there was so many so much work going on in New Orleans that I there wasn't anybody available. So then they said, okay, you can hire somebody who's not from New Orleans, but you can't hire anybody from Los Angeles or New York. They're too expensive. So I had ended up trying. It took me forty seven different people before I finally found a set a set decorator who would who could come, who I could trust, who I thought had a good eye, and who understood the story we were trying to tell with with Bryn. And so he finally came on board. But then, and so we had a lot of discussions with him about this whole history of Bryn and how does the world represent and how, all the layering that has to go into that. <clears throat> and then just as we were getting into finally doing all that dressing, he took ill and had to leave. And so I had to find somebody else to come in. And that other person literally had two weeks to finish pulling together everything that the first guy had not been able to get done and find all that layering and all of that character. So everything you're seeing in terms of the set dressing that tells the story of Bryn was resolved in two weeks with somebody who hadn't even been on the project for the first 10 weeks of the project. <laughs> it's like the things that, um, and she did a great job. Claire did a fantastic job. It looked, she did a really great job with her team. And it's like, that's um, the things you don't count on happening, but stuff happens. I know that like some of the work must have been done already, but the fact that you still already have two weeks to just pull everything out and you manage to do it and it looks good. Like, well, not looks good. It looks incredible. That's another thing. Like, wow, like fair enough. Um, <laughs> just, I again, these, these are the sort of like, I guess, um, what's the best way to say it? Like superhuman efforts that people put in when it comes to the you know projects and how much they probably fight to get things done and made and how even in that sort of short time they managed to turn around and he's not even a big pat on the back it's just like a you should be thrown up in the air in celebration for it well it's i i try to choose projects these days where and i try to hire people into the department who have passion for what it is that we're doing that it's not just a job that it's that it's something that people really love doing and that they really want to try to find a way into telling this story. You know, our art director, Kristen Leckie, was fantastic. We had great set designers. The prop master Joran was a local New Orleans guy who was a fantastic find. It was just all kinds of people that just had a passion for telling this story. And through all the difficulties of budget and schedule and and shifts and morphs and things that we didn't expect to have happen, that passion carried everybody through. And it shows on the screen with the end product of how good it is and how enjoyable it is. Ramsey, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. I really appreciate that you managed to, that you, we got to talk. No one will save you streaming now on Hulu uh, in the US. And then I guess around the world, it's on Disney slash Disney plus slash star. If you haven't seen it, go out and watch it. I know we probably spoiled it all, but you should still go out and see it and watch Ramsey's work and Claire's work and everybody involved uh, as well. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed having a chance to talk to with you about it. Thank you so much. You take care and bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.